Chapter Eleven of the Mystery of the Four Fingers. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Mystery of the Four Fingers by Fred M. White. Chapter Eleven: An Unexpected Move. On the whole, the discovery was startling enough. It proved to demonstration that the man who called himself Bates must have been in some way connected with the one-time unfortunate owner of the Four Finger Mine. There was little said as the two friends walked down the street together. Venner paused presently, and stood as if an idea had occurred to him. "'I have a notion that something will come of this,' he said. "'I had a great mind to go back to the agents and try to get the key of the empty house, under some pretext or another.' "'What do you want it for?' Gurdon asked. "'I am not sure that I want it for anything,' Venner admitted. "'I have a vague idea, a shadowy theory, that I am on the right track at last. But I may be wrong, especially as I am dealing with so unscrupulous an opponent as Fenwick.' All the same, I think I'll step round to that agent's office this afternoon and get the key. Sooner or later I shall want a townhouse, and I don't see why that Portsmouth Square place shouldn't suit me very well. Venner was true to his intention, and later in the afternoon was once more closeted with the house agent. Do you really want to let the place? he asked. Well, upon my word, sir, I am not quite sure, the agent replied. As I said before, it is such a difficult matter to get in contact with the owner. But unless he wanted to let it, why did he put it in your hands? Venner asked. Still, you can try to communicate with him, and it will save time if you let me have the keys to take measurements and get estimates for the decorating and so on. I will give you any references you require. Oh, there can be no objection to that, the agent replied. Yes, you can have the keys now, if you like. You are not in the least likely to run away with the place. Venner departed with the keys in his possession, and made his way back to the hotel. He had hardly reached his own room before a waiter came in with a note for him. It was from Vera, with an urgent request that Venner would see her at once, and the intimation that there would be no danger in his going up to the suite of rooms occupied by Mark Fenwick. Venner lost no time in answering this message. He felt vaguely uneasy and alarmed. Surely there must be something wrong, or Vera would not have sent for him in this sudden manner. He could not quite see, either, how it was that he could call at Fenwick's rooms without risk. However, he hesitated no longer, but knocked at the outer door of the self-contained rooms, which summons was presently answered by Vera herself. "'You can come in,' she said. "'I am absolutely alone. Mr. Fenwick has gone off in a great hurry with all his assistance, and my own maid will not be back for some little time.' "'But is there no chance of Fenwick coming back?' Venner asked. "'If he caught me here, all my plans would be ruined. My dear girl, why don't you leave him and come to me?' I declare it makes me miserable to know that you are constantly in contact with such a man as that. It isn't as if you were any relation to him. Thank goodness I am no relation at all, Vera replied. It is not for my own sake that I endure all this humiliation. Then why endure it? Venner urged. Because I cannot help myself. Because there is someone else whom I have to look after and shield from harm. Some day you will know the whole truth, but not yet, because my lips are sealed but I did not bring you here to talk about myself. There are other and more urgent matters. I am perfectly sure that something very wrong is going on here. Not long after breakfast this morning, Mr. Fenwick was sitting here reading the paper, when he suddenly rose in a state of great agitation, and began sending telegrams right and left. I am certain that there was terribly disturbing intelligence in that paper, but what it was I, of course, cannot say. I have looked everywhere for a clue, and all in vain. No sooner were the telegrams dispatched, then the three or four men here, who Mr. Fenwick calls his clerks, gathered all his papers and things together, and sent them off by express vans. Mr. Fenwick told me 
that everything was going to the place that he had taken at Canterbury, but I don't believe that, because none of the boxes were labelled. Anyway, they have all gone, and I am instructed to remain here until I hear from Mr. Fenwick again. Venner began to understand. In the light of his superior knowledge, it was plain to him that these men had been interrupted in some work, and that they feared the grip of the law. He expressed a wish to see the paper which had been the cause of all the trouble. The news sheet lay on the floor, where Fenwick had thrown it, and Venner took it up in his hands. "'This has not been disturbed?' he asked. "'No,' Vera replied. "'I thought it best not to. I have looked at both sides of the paper myself, but I have not turned over a leaf. You see, it must have been on one side or another of this sheet that the disturbing news appeared, and that is why I have not looked further. Perhaps you will be able to pick out the particular paragraph? There is plenty of time.' Very carefully Venner scanned the columns of the paper. He came at length to something that seemed to him to bear upon the sudden change of plans, which appeared to have been forced upon Fenwick. The paragraph in question was not a long one, and emanated from the New York correspondence of the Daily Herald. "'We are informed,' the paragraph ran, "'that the police here believe that at length they are on the track of the clever gang of international swindlers who were so successful in their bank forgeries two years ago. Naturally enough, the authorities are very reticent as to names and other details.' but they declare that they have made a discovery which embraces what is practically a new crime, or, at any rate, a very ingenious variant upon an old one. As far as we can understand, the police were first put on the track by the discovery of the fact that the head of the gang had recently transported some boxes of gold dust to London. Quite by accident this discovery was made, and at first the police were under the impression that the gold had been stolen. When, however, they had proved beyond the shadow of a doubt, that the gold in question was honestly the property of the gang, they naturally began to ask themselves what it was intended for. As the meadow could be so easily transferred into cash, what was the object of the gang in taking the gold to Europe? This question the head of the Criminal Investigation Department feels quite sure that he has successfully solved. The public may look for startling developments before long. Meanwhile, two of the smartest detectives in New York are on their way to Europe, and are expected to reach Liverpool by the Lusitania today. "'There is the source of the trouble,' Venner said. "'I hardly care about telling you how I know, because the less information you have on this head, the better, and I don't want your face to betray you to the sharp eyes of Mark Fenwick, but I am absolutely certain that that paragraph is the source of all the mischief.' "'I dare say it is,' Vera sighed. "'I feel so terribly lonely and frightened sometimes, so afraid of something terrible happening, that I feel inclined to run away and hide myself. What shall I do now? Though I am afraid you cannot help me.' "'I can help you in a way you little dream of,' Venner said through his teeth. "'For the present, at any rate, you had better do exactly as Fenwick tells you. I am not going to leave you here all alone. When we have a chance like this, after dinner, I am going to take you to a theatre. Meanwhile, I must leave you now, as I have much work to do, and there is no time to be lost. It will be no fault of mine if you are not absolutely free from Mark Fenwick before many days have passed.' Venner sat alone at dinner keeping a critical eye open for whatever might be going on around him. He had made one or two little calculations as to time and distance, and unless his arithmetic was very far out, he expected to learn something useful before midnight. The meal had not proceeded very far when two strangers came in and took their places at a table close by. They were in evening dress and appeared to be absolutely at home, yet in some subtle way they differed materially from the other diners about them. On the whole, they might have passed for two mining engineers who had just touched civilization after a long lapse of time. 
Venner noticed that they both ate and drank sparingly, and that they seemed to get through their dinner as speedily as possible. They went off to the lounge presently, to smoke over their coffee, and Venner followed them. He dropped into a seat by their side. "'You have forgotten me, Mr. Egan,' he said to the smaller man of the two. "'Don't you remember that night on the Bowery, when I was fortunate enough to help you lay hands on the notorious James Daly? You were in rather a tight place, I remember.' "'Bless me, if it isn't Mr. Venner,' the other cried. "'This is my friend, Grady. I dare say you have heard of him.' "'Of course I have,' Venner replied. "'Mr. Grady is quite as celebrated in his way as you are yourself. But, you see, there was a time when I took a keen interest in crime and criminals, and some of my experiences in New York would make a respectable volume. When I heard that you were coming over here—' "'You heard we were coming over?' Egan exclaimed. "'I should very much like to know how you heard that.' "'Oh, you needn't be alarmed.' Venner laughed. "'Nobody has betrayed your secret mission to Europe, though, strangely enough, I fancy I shall be in a position to give you some considerable assistance. I happened to see a paragraph in the Herald today, alluding to a mysterious gang of swindlers who had hit upon a novel form of crime. Something to do with gold dust, I believe it was. At the end of the paragraph it stated that two of the smartest detectives in the New York force were coming over here, and therefore it was quite fair to infer that you might be one of them. In any case, if you had not been, I could have introduced myself to your colleagues and used your name. Egan looked relieved, but he said nothing. You are quite right to be reticent, Venner said. But as I remarked before, I think I can help you in this business. You hope to lay hands on the man you wanted in this hotel. I quite see you know something, Egan replied. As a matter of fact, we are a long way at present from being in a position to lay hands on our man with a reasonable hope of convicting him. There will be a great deal of watching to do first, and a lot of delicate detective work. That is the worst of these confounded newspapers. How that paragraph got into the Herald, I don't know, but it is going to cause Grady and myself a great deal of trouble. To be quite candid, we did expect to find our man here, but when he had vanished as he did, just before we arrived, I knew at once that somebody must have been giving him information. Do I know the name of the man? Venner asked. If you don't, I certainly can't tell you, Egan said. One has to be cautious, even with so discreet a gentleman as yourself. That's very well, Venner said, but it so happens that I am just as much interested in this individual as yourself. Now let me describe him. He is short and stout. He is between fifty and sixty years of age. He has beady black eyes and a little hooked nose like a parrot. Also, he has an enormous bald head, and his coloring is strongly like that of a yellow tomato. If I am mistaken that I have no further interest in the matter. "'Oh, you are not mistaken,' Egan said. "'That is our man, right enough. But tell me, sir, do you happen to know what his particular line is, just at present?' "'I have a pretty good idea,' Venner said. "'But I am not quite sure as yet. I have been making a few inquiries, and they all tend to confirm my theory. But I am afraid I cannot stay here discussing the matter any longer, as I have an important appointment elsewhere. Do you propose to stay at the Empire Hotel for any time?' Egan replied that it all depended upon circumstances. They were in no way pressed for time, and as they were there on state business, they were not limited as to expenses. With a remark to the effect that they might meet again later on in the evening, Venner went on his way, and stood waiting for Vera at the foot of the stairs. She came down presently, and they entered a cab together. "'We won't go to a theatre at all,' Venner said. "'We will try one of the music halls, and we shall be able to talk better there.' If we have a box, we shall be quite secure from observation. It is all the same to me, Vera smiled. I care very little where I go, so long as we are together. 
How strange it is that you should have turned up in this extraordinary way. There is nothing strange about it at all, Venner said. It is only fate, making for the undoing of the criminal. It may be an old-fashioned theory of mine, but justice always overtakes the rogue sooner or later, and Fenwick's time is coming. I have been the instrument chosen to bring about his downfall, and save you from your terrible position, if you would only confide in me. But I can't, dear, Vera said. There is somebody else. If it were not for that somebody else, I would end my troubles to-morrow. But don't let us talk about it. Let us have two delightful hours together, and thank Providence for the opportunity. The time passed all too quickly in the dim seclusion of one of the boxes. Indeed, Vera sat up with a start when the orchestra began to play the national anthem. It seemed impossible that the hour was close upon twelve. As to the performance itself, Vera could have said very little. She had been far too engrossed in her companion to heed what was taking place upon the stage. "'Come along,' Venner said. "'It has been a delightful time, but all too brief. I am going to put you in a cab and send you back to the hotel, as I have to go and see Gurdon.' Vera made no demur to this arrangement, and presently was being conveyed back to the hotel, while Venner thoughtfully walked down the street. Late as it was, the usual crop of horse-yelling newsboys were ranging the pavement, and forcing their wares on the unwilling passers-by. "'Here you are, sir! Late special! Startling developments of the Bates case! The mystery solved!' "'I'll take one of those,' Venner said. "'Here's a sixpence for you, and you can keep the change. Call me that cab there.' End of chapter 11